Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. Here is the next instalment of the Gourmet Gospel, bringing us to the end of section two. Enjoy. Faith equals righteousness. Quotes By grace are ye saved through faith. Grace, without any respect to human worthiness, conveys the glorious gift. Faith, with an empty hand, without any pretense of personal desert, receives the heavenly blessing. Charles Wesley This doctrine of justification by faith has had more assaults made against it than any other teaching in Scripture. Indeed, many other errors were but the enemy's sly approaches to get nearer to undermine this one. William Gurnall, The Christian in Complete Armour He purified their hearts by faith. Acts 15, 9 The righteous will live by faith, said Paul. What does he mean by this? In a longer explanation of the idea, he writes, But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This idea that faith alone makes a person blameless in the eyes of God echoes throughout the New Testament, but the principle debuts in the Old Testament, where Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, where faith conferred perfection and where King Hezekiah prayed, May the Lord, who is good, pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. In response, the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Enter Martin Luther. Faith, then, and faith alone puts us right with God. It's a simple concept, but the implications are revolutionary. This was certainly the case when Martin Luther ran with the idea in the early 1500s and in the process overturned the established order of his day. But even now, five centuries later, this most quoted of Christian doctrines is least embraced. Let us therefore revisit Luther's fiery logic now in his commentary on the book of Galatians. Here he embraces a mere passive righteousness, living without even knowledge of law, let alone enforcement of it, and living in a new world where the very perception of sin is impossible. There be diverse sorts of righteousness. There is a political or civil righteousness. There is also a ceremonial righteousness. There is another righteousness called the righteousness of the law, or of the Ten Commandments, which Moses teacheth, there is yet another righteousness, which is above all these, to wit, the righteousness of faith, or Christian righteousness, the which we must diligently discern from the other afore rehearsed, for they are quite contrary 
to this righteousness, but this most excellent righteousness, of faith I mean, which God through Christ without works imputeth unto us, is neither political nor ceremonial, nor the righteousness of God's law, nor consisteth in our works, but is clean contrary, that is to say, a mere passive righteousness. For in this we work nothing, we render nothing unto God, but only we receive and suffer another to work in us, that is to say, God. This is a righteousness hidden in a mystery, which the world doth not know, yea, Christians themselves do not thoroughly understand it. Thus I abandon myself from all active righteousness, both of mine own and of God's law, and embrace only that passive righteousness. The greatest knowledge, then, and the greatest wisdom of Christians is not to know the law, to be ignorant of works and of the whole active righteousness, to learn to be ignorant of the law, and so to live before God as if there were no law. So let us bear the image of the heavenly, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, which is the new man in a new world, where is no law, no sin, no sting of conscience, no death, but perfect joy, righteousness, grace, peace, life, salvation, and glory. Why do we then nothing? Do we work nothing for the obtaining of this righteousness? I answer, nothing at all. For the nature of this righteousness is to do nothing, to hear nothing, to know nothing whatsoever of the law or of works, but to know and to believe this only, that Christ is gone to the Father and is not now seen, that he sitteth in heaven at the right hand of his Father, not as judge, but made unto us of God wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Briefly, that he is our high priest interceding for us and reigning over us and in us by grace. Here, no sin is perceived, no terror or remorse of conscience is felt, for in this heavenly righteousness sin can have no place, for there is no law, and where no law is, there can be no transgression. Romans 4.15 Seeing then that sin hath here no place, there can be no anguish of conscience, no fear, no heaviness. Therefore St. John saith, He that is born of God cannot sin. 1 John 3.9 Take a moment to let this sink in. Here is set out the theoretical foundation of this entire book. Being in grace, in the unmerited favour of God, means that righteousness requires no effort of us, no fulfilment of any regulation, no adherence to any code. We are persuaded neither to obey nor disobey rules of church, state, scripture, institution or public opinion. By mere coincidence, our choices will sometimes converge with them or contradict, yet all these variants of law are and will always remain irrelevant and inconsequential to the realm we now inhabit. Luther continues, Like as the earth engendereth not rain, nor is able by her own strength, labour and travail to procure the same, but receiveth it of the mere gift of God from above, 
So this heavenly righteousness is given us of God without our works or deservings. As much, therefore, as the earth of itself is able to do in getting and procuring to itself seasonable showers of rain to make it fruitful, even so much are we men able to do by our strength and works in winning this heavenly and eternal righteousness. And therefore we shall never be able to attain to it unless God himself by mere imputation and by his unspeakable gift do bestow it upon us. Ignorance is bliss. Quotes. Has any of the rulers or any of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law. John 7, 47-49 My doctrines and I begin to part company. Thomas Hardy, Jude the Obscure a sound human creature, one to whom not yet has been proffered the questionable apple of knowledge. Herman Melville, Billy Budd, Sailor You might say, Luther champions a type of ignorance when he describes righteousness as hearing nothing and knowing nothing whatsoever of the law or of works, but I prefer to call it not knowing or innocence. In any case, knowledge is the key factor here. Recall that the tree from which Adam and Eve illegally ate was not called the tree of good and evil, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the attempt to impart destructive knowledge is the plot Satan hatches in Milton's Paradise Lost. Can it be sin to know? Can it be death? And do they only stand by ignorance? Is that their happy state, the proof of their obedience and their faith? O oh, fair foundation laid whereon to build their ruin! Hence I will excite their minds with more desire to know. That knowledge, once imparted, brought upon its victims shame, guilt and condemnation, experiences that had not even been in their vocabulary before. Knowledge was all it took to pervert the course of human history. No wonder, then, that Luther would expel not just the knowledge imparted by the outlawed fruit, but even the knowledge of the law forbidding it. It is a vision shared by the 17th-century English poet and religious writer Thomas Traherne in his reverie of childhood. All appeared new, and strange at the first, inexpressibly rare and delightful and beautiful. I was a little stranger, which at my entrance into the world was saluted and surrounded with innumerable joys. My knowledge was divine. I knew by intuition. My very ignorance was advantageous. I seemed as one brought into the estate of innocence. All things were spotless and pure and glorious, yea, and infinitely mine, and joyful and precious. I knew not that there were any sins or complaints or laws. Is it not strange that an infant should be heir of the world and see those mysteries which the books of the learned never unfold? 
so that with much ado I was corrupted, and made to learn the dirty devices of this world, which now I unlearn, and become as it were a little child again, that I may enter into the kingdom of God. But can we unlearn? Can we forget? Is there an innocence, a not knowing, to which we can return? Can we embrace such a fantastic and impossible revelation? Is there such mastery of life to be had? I am not suggesting we can simply do a memory wipe and remove all recollection of commandments, prescriptions and formulae from our lives. Even if it were possible, we would need to remain completely isolated from the world and its texts to prevent reinfection. But there is a state of consciousness available to us that achieves the same result. All that is required for this return to a pre-law Eden and the blessing of not knowing is an act of imagination. The Unbendable Arm Our power to engage with innocence, unaffected by law, is beautifully illustrated by a physical metaphor. It goes like this. Make a fist and crook your arm with elbow by your side so that your forearm is parallel to the floor, knuckles facing downward. Ask a friend to try and force your fist up to your shoulder and try to resist them. Now, do the same again, but instead of trying to resist them, pick a point on the wall and imagine a beam of light going from your fist to that point. Your arm becomes unbendable. The strength of the person trying to bend your arm can represent law's efforts to constrain you with its false representations of good and evil. But your focus on the light represents an unbreakable connection with innocence that cannot be touched. By acts of imagination, then, we effectively transcend the knowledge of good and evil and may act or not act independently of it. Innocence Transcendent Quotes Of good and evil much they argued then, vain wisdom all, and false philosophy. John Milton, Paradise Lost Knowledge of good bought dear by knowing ill. John Milton, Paradise Lost The concepts of good and evil are not only spiritually irrelevant, they are at best useless as either prescriptions or descriptions of human behaviour. No one shows up in the world and says, Look at me, I'm evil, treacherous, deceitful, vicious, spiteful, vindictive, selfish and greedy. Rather, each regards himself and expects to be regarded as a good person, a positive influence in the world, and when in that polarised mindset can always forge justifications for harmful and destructive acts. Meanwhile, appalling atrocity, theft and injustice continue, especially in our institutions of earthly power, often under the guise of purported virtues such as democracy, security or providing jobs. It's the kind of delusion 
that allowed Barack Obama, in his acceptance of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009, to declare, I am a living testimony to the moral force of non-violence, before going on to kill record numbers in drone strikes and oversee unprecedented levels of deportation and whistleblower prosecution. Not that I am taking a political stand here. As my other published works attest, I dish it out across party lines. But I have singled out Obama here as a recent example of empire's hypocrisies and of how an intelligent man can operate in patterns of language and thought that make us deceivers of ourselves. If we are to insist on using terms like good and evil, then it would serve us to acknowledge Solzhenitsyn's observation that the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Or, in the language of Shakespeare, the web of our life is of a mingled yarn, good and ill together. But if we strive to hold this artificial pendulum on the good side, then the inevitable oscillations to the bad side are exaggerated. An Undivided Discourse Quote, I no longer divide politics into left and right. I think that was a relatively logical way and a relatively realistic way to describe politics in the 20th century, but today, politics is divided between the politics of life and the politics of death. Gustavo Petro, Colombian senator and presidential candidate, speaking on Democracy Now! August 10, 2018. Polarization does not just afflict the human heart, of course, but society as a whole, and humanity has invented a shorthand to magnify the alienation and division in our political discourse. Adjectives like left-wing and right-wing, liberal or conservative, neoliberal or neoconservative, are the clumsy and reductive labels used to define our us-and-them alignments in this little theatre of politics. But Christ's love transcends our artificial divisions to heal the wound dividing human and humanity. And when we look at transcendental values, love, peace, joy, justice and truth, and when we embrace universal longings, especially when informed by our golden rule, none of this can be the monopoly of one political wing. It is the kind of vision that informs non-violent political movements too, which operate in a higher realm than the violent mechanisms of state power. To regard humanity from such a vantage point may be likened to the realm of an airline passenger. He may observe land and sea passing below, and by watching the flight screen, identify the nations traversed. But no border, either geographical or man-made, has any relevance in his realm of operation. Meanwhile, all kinds of national flags are traversing all kinds of airspace emblazoned on these unfettered vehicles that use two wings to fly. Wouldn't it be transformative to bring that undivided mindset to Earth? You've been listening to my audiobook recording of The Gourmet Gospel, 
and I'll continue releasing the book in installments over the coming months. The e-book is currently free at most retailers, and you can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprofit.com, where profit spelt P-R-O-P-H-E-T. I'll finish now with this tribute to Shakespeare from my book, Well Versed. It's called Tribute of Tributes. Making the heaven of heavens your dwelling place, you stand nearest to God. You brought to birth the world, the heavens, and the underworld, all bathed in music, hovering over them, a Godhead mighty and eternal, spurning the bounded reign of time and place, somewhere betwixt despair and God, you spread abroad your thoughts and beauties, that by instinct man is intimate with thee. O eye of God, our myriad-minded Shakespeare and our pattern to live or die, we must be free or die who speak your language, stuff of muse and thunder. So say the accolades of Reinhardt, Coleridge, Olivier, Johnson, Lawrence, Browning, Wordsworth, Jane Austen, Ionesco, Arnold. Now, I end with Borges' words, ascribed to God. I dreamed the world the way you dreamt your plays. With them, I'll love thee till the end of days. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy. Music